Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Guillermo Rao. Guillermo is the founder and CEO of Vercel, a cloud platform for building and deploying web applications. He's the creator of several major open source projects, including Next.js and Socket.io. He's also a dual threat CEO. He runs a solo VC called Rao Capital. Guillermo, welcome to World of DAS. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Now, Vercel's kind of at the forefront of a bunch of major trends in software development and programming right now, like edge computing and serverless computing. Where do you think the industry is going? Yeah, there are a lot of trends that underpin a change in how we're building and deploying applications. And to me, the thing that relates to my personal history is we're switching toward a front-end first way of building applications. So I have a background as a front-end engineer. I grew up in the JavaScript world, later the TypeScript world, Node.js. A lot of projects that had this dream of, can we write things in one language and run them everywhere? I actually wrote a book many years ago called Universal Applications. This idea of you can write code that gets deployed to the cloud, to the edge, to the client, and you can have all these potential touch points with the customer experience. Because it used to be there'd be like a JavaScript front-end thing with a front-end team, and then there was maybe the Java or guys on the back-end. And you had to coordinate them. Yeah, maybe they wouldn't even talk to one another. Literally, what we had to do was the Java team needed some templating language that was ad hoc. And then there was a JavaScript engineer team also figure out how to re-render that thing. Because what's happening over time is a lot of the value in new groundbreaking applications is in the user experience. ChatGPT comes out. What is it? It's a great user experience to interface with an AI model that It's actually just a small twist on things that they had been trying in the past in the case of OpenAI. They just nailed it with the user interface. They nailed it with the product. Overnight, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users. Funny enough, ChatGPT is built with our framework, Next.js. They created this awesome user experience that has captivated folks. There had been other AI products, dashboards, things that they put out, but this particular combination of an incredible revolutionary AI technology with the right user interface can scale and travel the world so quickly. So what we did with this framework and the Vercel platform was, what if your starting point in how you build and deploy software was the actual user interface, the thing that you're going to deliver? And then you work backwards into the backend. And what's really interesting is that this revolution is in juxtaposition of another revolution, which has been the cloud in itself and the rise of the API economy. A lot of the things that we used to build from scratch with that Java team we are just talking about have become off-the-shelf API services. It could be an internal microservice or in many ways it's an external service like Stripe or something. Correct. So this decoupling had already been happening. We're missing that technology stack that really emphasized, okay, like we kind of nailed the microservices part. What about the front-end part? It used to be that the front was last minute, I'll scramble something. But how do you justify that in juxtaposition with the fact that the best products 
in the past 10 or so years have been from the companies that have created a incredible set of innovations on the front end side. So one of the things, one of the secrets of Next is that under the hood, if you like opened the hood of the car, you would find an engine called React. React is this UI library that came out of Meta that powers some of the most engaging and interesting user interfaces on the web of the past few decades. The newsfeed, the idea of this auto-scrolling experience that comes up with near-instant recommendations of content, their notification system, their chat system. All of this is predicated on putting a lot of investment into the front-end infrastructure. The rest of us, the mere mortals that didn't work at Amazon, Meta, and Google, we're not seeing this matrix of, I need to prioritize the front end. And I think part of that was that, again, like there was just so much work to do on the infrastructure. We're starting to decouple the monolith of the backend into microservices. We're laying out the data infrastructure foundations that we didn't get to the front end piece, I think. They wouldn't get to the front end chapter. The other really interesting thing is, and I think why Vercel has seen so much traction with e-commerce in particular, there is a cohort of folks that are very incentivized to hop on the front-end bandwagon. And those are the folks that have been instrumenting their businesses. So e-commerce, there's very clear data. The old-fashioned data I'll share is for 100 milliseconds of better performance that you're delivering the impression of the page, Amazon saw 1% fluctuation in sales. That was like the canonical study that everyone shared. Most recently, Deloitte and Google put out a follow-up that was, instead of focusing on desktop, like Amazon did, was predicated on mobile devices. Now, for 100 milliseconds of improvement across travel, luxury, marketing, and beyond, they saw an 8% lift in conversion. So the decoupling of backend and frontend and optimizing the frontend experience is already the standard in e-commerce. We call this the composable architecture that you can make Shopify, not a monolith. Shopify doesn't keep track of your entire front end, your plugin, your liquid templates. You just use it as an API, as a headless GraphQL backend. So that's just one example, one vertical that is seeing incredible ROI on, I'm going to start really emphasizing this front end thing. My thesis and what we're seeing with Vercel is that this is not just something you optimize. You can actually say, I'm going to start building front-end first. Think about the world of AI right now. It's very hard to compete with OpenAI on putting out an, a better LLM than GPT-4. Yeah, very expensive. What's your innovation opportunity? Velocity of integration of the API. Experimentation getting your first chatbot, your first support center, your first AI recommendation system, getting it out quickly, iterate on it, and then connect to the right backends instead of reinventing the wheel from scratch. So at Vercel, with this idea of the front-end cloud, we're going all in on, hey, front-end is the profit center. And the backends that are undifferentiated, which are not all of them, of course, are your cost center. So far, it's been an interesting journey. There's so many businesses that you interact with, whether it's travel or commerce or banking or government, where the UI is just 
atrocious. It's horrible. It's so hard to use. It's constantly breaking. It's really, really slow. Even sites I use all the time, I would throw in a Salesforce or LinkedIn or something like that. They're atrocious. They don't really value the user very well. Do you think those are the businesses that are ripe for disruption or do you think they're just going to come around and they're going to actually start investing in some of these UI things? It's both. I like the LinkedIn example because LinkedIn and you and your podcast audience know this even better than me, they had to be burdened with creating a lot of the foundational projects in data. The back end. In search engines. They invent the cloud. So major kudos to them. What you see with some of those products is that, yeah, the front experience does lack. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Every time I open it, it greets me with a spinner. <laughs> Wait for quite a while. The argument that we've been making is each 100 millisecond of spinner we talk so much about one of the trends that he called out is edge compute, server rendering, the global deployment strategy as opposed to just one place. A lot of that is predicated on let's render less spinner, more content, more action, more transaction opportunities. So I think two things to answer your question concretely. One is they will have to adapt and integrate the newer ideas and tools. But also, I do think there's lots of disruption opportunities in the market right now. For I don't want to sound like a parrot on AI, but there is opportunities where you're saying, I'm not just going to make a faster product. I'm going to make a more intelligent product. Again, if you're composing services, you can iterate your way to get to that product market fit, I think, much faster. So we end up talking a lot about iteration velocity. This is one of the big lessons of Vercel so far. We started out on fast, fast, fast wins. And the thing that we hear a lot about is, but iterating faster brings even more value to my business because they find the right thing to build sooner. There's an art and there's a science of UI and UX. And for a while, it seemed like the science was taking over. It was like, we're going to A-B test everything versus the orange or bright red button or something. How do you think that is evolving? Some people like folks from Airbnb, the CEO of Airbnb was just at the Figma conference and saying, we're just A-B testing too much. I also see some people that just don't experiment enough because they're a victim to the limitations of their stack. It's just too hard to move. Yeah. They're experiment what? Like, well, what is that? I'm, I'm over here just trying to make sure that the website doesn't go down. You would be surprised about how many companies I talk to that are saying, I send out a newsletter and I literally have to cap the audience size, even though I could be sending it to millions or tens of millions. I cannot because the site goes down. Imagine going and talking to them about A-B tests and whatever. So we have that cohort of customers. Then we have the customers that are literally limited by their infra. They want to A-B test more and they know that maybe one team can, but they cannot. They just didn't have enough of the infrastructure, like platform engineering teams, attention, time, budget, whatever, to provision that more complex infrastructure that enables more complex workloads, more dynamic rendering, instead of putting things in a static site. What I'll tell you is that everybody in the world needs the ability to roll things out with different strategies. Even just today, we announced our integration with LaunchDarkly. LaunchDarkly is a feature flag management provider. One of the selling points is experimentation. But the other one is that if you want to launch a thing, you should be able to control the rollout process. You should be able to roll things back instantly. So it's about not just 
experimenting, but also having the confidence to ship things and not having an engineering and product team that are terrified of messing with the machine and touching the different knobs and really empowering them. Believe it or not, a lot of this is predicated on the front end itself. When COVID hit, I decided to get back into programming and I was really surprised at how hard it was to set up my local environment. It was a mess. We're really just talking about three years ago and then recently redid it. And it just seemed like it was way, way, way easier. You have a lot of things more cloud-based now. Do you think that frustration that I had three years ago is quickly becoming something of the past? One of the biggest points of Next and Vercel is that we're obsessed about the local development experience. I mentioned earlier, why is edge computing exciting? Why is accelerating and deploying a global front end exciting? Well, right now I'm in Switzerland. I can go to any of the storefronts that deploy in Vercel, and I can have a personalized experience that knows where I am, who I am, what I've visited before, what I've ordered before, and the right currency while I'm here, which is Swiss francs or Maybe it's even dollars because it knows that I'm logged in and I'm not from here. So to do that at scale is extremely hard. It's literally a globally distributed system. If you ask a computer scientist, they'll tell you one of the biggest challenges in computer science is the orchestration, management, and reasoning of a globally distributed system. So how does that fare with the concept of, I want a good local development experience? So one thing that Next.js does that's really clever is when you work locally, it feels like a monolithic experience. I can touch any part of the system, develop and work on the feature that I need to work on. When I deploy, especially on platforms like Vercel, it becomes a global distributed system. So we create the infrastructure from the analysis of the application. We found a very strange, mythical, like best of both worlds thing. For the dev, great developer experience, especially on local machines. For the visitor, a global system that tailors and runs compute all over the globe just in time. And all of this without having to staff platform engineering team with lots of SREs and Kubernetes experts and all of those things that you outsource that developer infrastructure to Vercel instead. There's this new wave of let's say, developer tool companies, for lack of a better word, and I put Vercel in there or Replit or some of these really cool companies that are changing the game. There's a scenario where you guys could change the game so much that we could unleash this whole new wave of innovation and we can get a whole more layer of productivity and really cool things that are happening in the world. How do you think that is going? Where are we on that journey? I think we're part of this new cohort of companies that are saying, first of all, power to the developer. The developer experience is a key part of a modern, successful, product-led and product-centric organization. How does that translate into the traction that we're seeing with Vercel? Well, every company is looking to become a digital product organization. I was speaking recently with a CIO of a very, very large product company whose product you've heard of, you love, you probably have in your household. And what they were saying is, we don't want to be disintermediated. Our .com is just as important as the hardware that we're known for that you have in your household. But if you, going back to your perception of, why do I go to some websites and they're so slow? The average airline booking experience 
the average e-commerce experience? Why are all these front ends so clunky? So that's where we're looking to change. And again, the tailwinds are in our favor because the people that are going to make your .com great turn out to be these developers that care about this developer experience that are not the manufacturing and hardware engineers that you became known for for that particular product. So as you look to complement your skill set as an organization, my bet is you're going to look for comprehensive platforms that solve a wide range of problems for you. So this is the other interesting thing about Vercel. We took on a burden, which was to actually create a framework like Next.js, when the traditional wisdom was platforms don't have frameworks. They don't even write the integrations. Think about AWS. AWS just sells you the primitives. They're like, well, the tools are someone else's problem. You come to us when you exactly know what you need and where in the world you need it. In fact, for those that have used the big public clouds, the first question they ask you is, where in the world do you want to put in the workload? How do I make that gel with the fact that I talk to these CIOs and they tell me, well, we're expanding in North America, in Mexico, and do I tell them, well, go to the AWS console and select the region. And put in Oregon or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not even called Oregon. It's called Southwest, Northwest, UDP 1, 3. It's hard to figure out the cloud. So I think we're entering this phase of not to dismiss the incredible work that they've done on building those primitives, but the average internet company in the making or even established will not be shopping for primitives. They will be shopping for the vertical integration. Think of it as the vertical integration between operating system and laptop that the MacBook and Apple pioneered. What does it look like for the developer ecosystem? And that's, for example, the integration between Next and Vercel, Svelte and Vercel, what we're trying to accomplish there. If you think about the UI, some of the worst UI places, the developer tools, AWS, every time I log in there, it's just a mess. I can't navigate. I don't even know what's going on. It's like they expect everyone to command line it or something. In some ways, they're not treating their customers in a way where they really respect them. Yeah, I think it goes back to that idea of prioritizing the front end experience. So the obvious question is, I've been going all in on cloud for the past decade or so. I'm a big company. What do I do with all that cloud? And what do I do with all my plans to get more of that cloud? And how do I not fall for the trap of I end up shipping a site or application that doesn't live up to the standards? And frankly, in more crude terms, it doesn't live up to the sticker price. I go and look, like I go to my statements and billing centers and say, oh, we're paying all this much. And then I open our application. Do I get what I'm paying for? So the question would be, if I'm in that situation, how do I move forward? So the way that we bring Next and Vercel to market is very incremental. So we don't tell you to move your data to us. We connect to your data. We connect to your GraphQL gateway, REST API. We connect to your microservices. We launched a product called Vercel Secure Compute that allows you rendering functions for the pages in a secure environment dedicated, VPC connected into the cloud. So we actually connect to AWS. We build on top of their primitives. We can connect to other clouds. Our go-to-market positioning is very incremental. Look, you already have a backend cloud or you're looking to transition to one. Here's how you actually ensure you have a great end user experience. 
If you're advising other founders to build successful companies around popular or up-and-coming open source projects, what are some of the do's and don'ts? I'm happy to report that I and my colleagues at Vercel have been starting to put together a framework for how you would go about doing a good dance between open source and a successful infrastructure business. So one of the concepts that we came up with is what we call framework-defined infrastructure. For those that have been around the industry for a while, you might remember like software-defined networking. So that's kind of where the term gains its inspiration. With framework-defined infrastructure, the open source framework, when deployed on our platform, defines the infrastructure that we create. By definition, the open source project gets amplified with a service that is fully managed called serverless today, where the value add on top of the framework is very clear. Like, look, I can go and operationalize this project myself. I might even be able to get it into a single region Kubernetes pod. But in the context of Vercel, I'm looking to actually optimize and deliver a great production experience for visitors all over the globe. So we found that good balance between open source and giving you the primitives or the ability to orchestrate those primitives yourself, or the infrastructure as a service solution that also comes with an additional layer of what you would call workflow and collaboration tools. Is there any cool checklist for a founder to kind of like think through? They've got a cool open source project. It's got 500 stars on GitHub. It's starting to take off. How should they be thinking about those trade-offs? One thing to think about is, again, the service has to provide a true power-up on what the company would otherwise do with. Yeah, not withhold features from the open source. I don't like to withhold features because if I'm selling to developers, they want to, it's in my best interest, in fact, if they use the framework to its full potential. I want them to be excited about the framework. I want them to love the framework. So that's a very clear part of the framework there. The other one is the experience aspect. And I'm obsessed with this just naturally. The biggest advocate within the organization will be a developer for whom your project makes their life easier. What I would add to that is, can you think about how your service makes the lives of their colleagues easier as well? Whether it's IT, security, DevOps, like, do you have answers to their concerns? So I think a lot of entrepreneurs might be after a local maxima of I'm just after the experience. I think this is honestly something that I see quite often, which is you might not even be designing with the right inputs. One of the things that we do that we've become known for in in the space of e-commerce, for example, is when Black Friday comes around, we guarantee that you thrive during Black Friday. So we had a company that was an early dot-com company. The companies that were their CEOs or CTOs were visionaries. And they were like, this inner thing we should be selling there in an early mover. And they were proud of that, like a badge of honor. That company, what they told me is, in our 20-year online history, we had never not gone down during Black Friday and the e-commerce season. So going back to open source versus platform, I'm giving you a very concrete value out there. You can go and figure out all this infrastructure by yourself. In fact, it's open source. It's built on standards. It's built on like, it's an HTTP web server at the end of the day. 
It speaks standard protocols, et cetera, et cetera. I have engineered an infrastructure that has been not just even load tested, is the primitives that we've selected are the ones that can actually scale to like really, really demanding workloads. So that's another example. There has been open source projects that have actually developed an anti-reputation because everyone loved them because they were open source. And then the mythology started about pitfalls in prod. It's funny, each generation of entrepreneurs learns from the challenges of the past. So I was obsessed with that problem. I was like, I cannot make open source be the downfall of the reputation of what happens to this thing at scale. And I suffered from that quite a bit with Socket.io, which was one of my open source projects, because there was only so much I could do to kind of transfer the best practices of how to scale it at massive concurrency. And I could write a readme. That's as far as open source can typically go and where services and infrastructure can start. You're a dual threat CEO. You're both a successful CEO and you're a great investor. Now, being a CEO almost certainly makes you be a better investor, but does being a good investor make you a better CEO? I love this tweet from Naval that came out a few weeks ago. He said, give advice and then apply to yourself. (laughs) I tend to give, I think, what I would consider okay advice. I add a lot of caveats. I say, look, this is what's happened to me. This is what I'm serving on the market. That's one of the things that I do that, again, like I think folks tend to, they like to hear it from an operator. It's harder to hear it from a venture capitalist. Or even somebody that used to be an operator, but they last operated seven years ago. Yeah, things move so fast. There's operators that build incredible dev tools or infrastructure companies, but it was pre-serverless, pre-edge. It was pre-DX and developer experience was not a thing. So many things, to your point, like so many things change. But then there is the other one that, to your point, is about like, hey, I'm telling you about advice that I want to apply myself right now. That's how in the trenches I am. You don't want to be a hypocrite. That's why I said I love that part of my job or job that I added to myself because I learn more about myself. I learn more about our journey. I rarely have the time to even think about the past and reflect on what we've done. So it's a great opportunity to be like, oh yeah, we did it that way. You should consider that or you should not consider that because it didn't work for us. So that's one part that the other one, quite frankly, is because we're in a ecosystem business, we are part of this huge cloud and Vercel is part of this front end cloud, which is getting to become a huge movement. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs that can add an integration to Vercel or think about how to best connect this to all the modern frameworks they will see a lot of perhaps customers, interests, whatever. Because I'm interested in seeing this ecosystem flourish, I'll give you an example. There's companies that are doing front-end first auth, front-end first experimentation, front-end first, you name it, CMS. There's a huge ecosystem of companies that's just so exciting to invest in because they're hopping on the right waves at the right time. We're starting to see a lot more dual threat CEOs. Do you think they'll be taking a greater market share from the traditional venture capitalists? Yes. In the early stage, I find it hard to believe that, again, that entrepreneur that is looking to go from zero to one will say, oh, yeah, I really need to partner with this particular individual from a firm, as opposed to I'm going to partner with, again, folks that have very concrete hands-on experience 
on the most pressing problems that I have at hand. I do think it's super healthy for the ecosystem that investing is getting democratized. Overall, I would love to see more diversity in the space, not just from there's five firms that do all these Silicon Valley deals, but there are a lot of great individuals that have great taste, that have great experiences, give great product feedback. Women, men, there's just so many awesome people out there that can be empowered to help create the companies of tomorrow. It's a societal thing, the way I look at it. It's, it's exciting that this is happening. Wrote an interesting piece recently discussing the significance of data moats in determining the future of success of these AI companies and AI-enabled companies. This is a data podcast. What's your view of the role of data in an AI-driven world? Where do I start? It's so exciting. Number one, data in motion and data in the hands of your customers, as opposed to internal data, is what Vercel Plus, your data systems enables. So I'll give you one quick example. We built a data product, Vercel Speed Insights. It tells you in real time how your pages are performing from an end user point of view. We give you a score and we tell you, look, in China right now, you have this score. In Switzerland, you have this score. In another parallel universe, that would have been an internal dashboard. When an enterprise partners with Vercel, I take it even as a personal responsibility that your stuff is fast. So we pipe the data securely, privately, et cetera, from the front ends into your hands and into the hands of your account manager, for example. So again, there was a world where that data only solved and fit that goal. The time to market for this product for us was extremely short. Why? Because most of the workload was on the front end and we're front end experts and we dog food for sale. So your mileage may vary, but we piggybacked on world-class data infrastructure. And we partnered with this company called Tinybird and they use ClickHouse as their engine. So if someone in your audience is thinking, okay, I have a lot of data here sitting in my analytics colonar store. I have a lot of data sitting in my warehouse, a lot of data sitting in S3 files. Well, what about how quickly you can turn that into product? That is one of the value adds of our front-end cloud. So that covers the data part. And that's just one area, which is creating data products. The actual data that these LLMs are trained on, whether it be just crawling the internet or YouTube videos or different question and answer sites and stuff like that that's out there. How do you think, whether it's the broad LM models like OpenAI or maybe more specific models that are specific to whether it's a coding thing or legal or whatever, how do you think those are going to be thinking about the truth behind the data? Onto that next category, which is broadly AI and its relationship to its data. I think all of the data that you mentioned is most relevant at training time and at tuning time and the life cycle of evolving your model. Where Vercel comes in is that eventually you deploy that model as an inference endpoint, which is once again an API. So just like Vercel can get content from your CMS as an API, one of our larger e-commerce customers uses Salesforce Commerce Cloud over an API to get its data. You can actually also incorporate these LLMs 
So there's a couple of trends that we're seeing that are very encouraging. Number one, there's just a tremendous level of integration between like open AIs, APIs, and Vercel frontends. We actually just announced the Vercel AI SDK to make it really easy to connect to these LLMs and create frontends from those. So you can open actually in a web browser chat.vercel.ai. So what this is, is your own chat GPT with the world-class front-end, open source, deployable with a couple clicks. In Vercel AI SDK, which is what brokers that connection between the LLM and the front-end, is actually provider agnostic. So this is onto the second part that I'm excited about. We're going to see the rise of models that are open source. We're going to see the rise of models that are deployed in your own infrastructure with your own data sets that are trained on your own experience, that are fine-tuned on your own terms with your own data and labelers. For these models, you can use platforms to facilitate its deployment, and you can use a Vercel AI SDK to, again, integrate it into an actual real-world product. So because there's so much going on with AI, we saw an 800% increase in AI products deployed on Vercel since the beginning of the year. We just launched our Vercel AI Accelerator to actually put in touch creators, developers, companies with all these AI backends, a lot of which they don't even know they exist. So I'll tell you another one that I'm really excited about. Eleven Labs just announced a round from Andreessen Horowitz, Nat Friedman, Daniel Gross, and I participated as an angel. I'm really excited about this company because it's voice AI. I could already picture once I heard about it, I was like, holy crap, the API is so easy to use. Imagine all the products that are going to be created on top of this. So I think we're going to continue to see this vertical AI companies. We're going to, they specialize in one problem domain, and then they empower developers to create experiences on top of it. Now, a few personal questions. You started working when you're a teenager, got into it. I don't even know if you've ever even finished high school or not. Give us a little backstory to how that happened. And do you think that was just completely unique to you? Or do you think there's just millions of other people who follow a similar path? I always share my story saying like, it's really unique. I don't necessarily recommend it to everybody. So don't go and quit high school and things like that. I didn't finish high school. I had maybe another quarter of studying left. And it was because of my open source work, I got recognized by a company in the US from San Diego and a company in one of their clients. Actually, we're not too far from where I'm visiting here now, which is in Lausanne, Switzerland. So by this time, I had already been working through the internet for quite a few years, but I had an opportunity to like literally launch my career, travel the world, present at conferences, develop more open source software, and then eventually move to Silicon Valley to start my own company. I dropped out of high school because I had no clue. I wasn't interested and like I wanted to pursue my dreams and they were not very well defined. You were making money. You had a job actually doing these things. Yeah, I was supporting my families financially. We grew up in Argentina in an area of the outskirts of Buenos Aires that is not particularly rich, to put it nicely. It was pretty dangerous even growing up. You're getting paid in dollars, I presume, too, which was nice. 
it came with its challenges. Like my dad even started relying a little bit too much on it. My angle was not very reliable. I was going to first elementary school and then high school. I have to focus on my work and I have to focus on school. And it had its own tricky parts to it. But overall, the idea that open source and the web and my fascination with frontend unlocked that journey is pretty amazing. And we're hoping that there will be many stories of folks that I'm not necessarily saying like, don't go to high school, but we are in the best time in history, I think, to really teach yourself anything. ChatGPT, AI auto-completion in your terminal, AI being integrated into every piece of the stack. Everybody can really, 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 if they put their minds and effort into it, anybody can learn how to code. Anyone can learn how to create an AI-first business. For people following on video, they might be able to see that you're super fit. <laughs> you're known for that. What's your fitness routine? I don't know if I'm known for it, but I mentioned if you put your mind to it, I think the one thing I would, this is not advice for entrepreneurs. This is axiomatic, I think, that the quality of your mind and your thoughts is a one of the key inputs there is the quality of your nutrition, the quality of your exercise, the quality of your posture, the quality of your meditation, whatever it is that you do to accomplish that state. So I always remind myself, it's hard to balance all of what I have to do and go to the gym for an hour. But remind myself, I'm just so motivated by solving problems with code really quickly, just thinking well. And today I don't code nearly as much. I could make it during a weekend, but I am motivated by how quickly can I attain the right thought, the right result, make the right decision. So I love ironing that out, literally ironing that out. Is there anything you do that's non-obvious on the health side? Yeah, I've painfully learned that most people overdo their fitness journeys and I'm victim number one. We could be in a support group and I'm Guillermo. Get some injury or something like that or? Not even injury. They just, they go overkill for like a week. Or maybe even if they keep it up for longer, it's just so intense that ends up being detrimental. I lucked into this Instagram reel from a actual running coach that was basically sharing that the world, the way that he trains his best athletes is by encouraging to make most of the runs easy. Rauch G, fascinated with speed and performance, was, I have to make every single workout the last workout of my life. Go all out. Every mile has to be the fastest mile I can do. And So you're taking like interval training to extreme. I switched my mindset to actually, I'm going to make most of my fitness not easy in the mental sense, because actually the bigger challenge that I find that I think dissuades most people from continuing is that it's a confrontation of being at a place where you're challenging your body for a long amount of time is a mental challenge that I think is even bigger than the physical challenge. So I think what ends up happening is that because you overload the physical challenge, you're fighting against inertia and gravity. And then you add the every workout is an extreme thing and you burn the candle on both ends, my overarching advice would be just optimize for longevity. I'm going to be working out every single day of my life, or the vast majority of them, hopefully, until I die. So work backwards from there. What do those workouts look like for me to be 100 years old and reflect on, oh, look, you know how Apple plots all the little circles? 
imagine just panning through your life and seeing, oh, look, mostly there are complete circles. Of course, here I took a day off, here I had a weekend, maybe here I had a trip, but I scanned through my life. So when you work backwards from that, you realize you can't just be doing freaking 300, this is Sparta, whatever, every single day of your life. Two more questions. What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? Uh, There's so many thoughts here. (laughs) One thing on conspiracy theories in general is taking it back a little when people get really annoyed or infuriated by the idea of people questioning things. I think to each their own. If there are people that want to speculate on what aliens are doing on YouTube, power to them. They can have their own alien conversation. I'm a huge fan of exploring the boundary of mind of what's possible and empowering people to think different. This is like Apple's motto back in the day. And a lot of great ideas were first met with a lot of resistance and questioning. And I'm talking about history. Like Galileo or something like that. Yeah. And a lot of those things literally sound crazy the first time you hear them. I think Darwin... I don't know exactly what the reaction was. I should look it up because I'm fascinated by that whole story. But I can't fathom a world where the idea of we evolved from what is considered to be this lower animal to not be seen as, well, that has to be a conspiracy theory. That's nonsense. A lot of things that turn out to be true have very negative reactions. So a conspiracy theory that I believe This is more on the things that people believe when they talk about conspiracy theories. I do believe that, especially in the United States, we've over-indexed on what pill I can take, what magic solution. This goes back to the longevity thing that I was just talking about. What can I buy off the shelf to make my life better? Is there a magic cure to everything I have, every ailment? And I believe that setting yourself up for success over the long term and what I found just through my own history is there's got to be some pain. There's got to be some sacrifice. Not to say that this is a conspiracy theory, but I do think that as a society with over-index on and those magical solutions and then sometimes when folks bring up that they're not fully on board with that, well, I don't agree with you. Like That's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> And that might mean that sometimes you talk to people that believe in things that are just lived experiences. I believe in meditation, for example. And I don't know if I can point to a specific paper for why I would recommend it for your life. There's a lot of sharp corners around all these topics and conversations, but I encourage everyone to have an open mind. The last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think that a lot of folks give product people the advice that they should validate everything with data and that they should run a lot of user research and that there's a justification for every action and everything that you put into your product. goes back to your A-B test question. I really believe that people purchase products because there is an abundance of belief and identification with the creators behind the tool. I see this a lot with Apple, where it's almost like a reality distortion field, even in the way that people perceive the product. People used to say Steve Jobs is a reality distortion field around their teammates. I see a reality distortion field sometimes with people. 
where you believe so much in the promise of the brand and the journey that they've taken their customers on for a long period of time, that you're actually able to gloss over what are objectively really bad things. So I think companies tend to underestimate the power of building that high-value brand connection with their customers. Maybe the advice would be that I hear, well, don't focus on your brand. It's too early. Janky page with (laughs) plain text. Like iterate your way to product market fit. But what if your product market fit is predicated on that connection with the customer? Think about it from this point of view. You are assembling an airplane after you jumped off the cliff. There's just no way that you cannot because... I'm a guy from Argentina with zero connections in Silicon Valley. I'm 19, 20 years old and I have nothing. I have just knowledge and open source projects and a community of people that I knew as engineers and so on. How can you actually possibly build a company? Even if you raise a seed round, it takes years. It's such a catch-22. You have to get to something that's really good that inspires people, that solves businesses' problems. And that's just an enormous amount of time. It almost seems like an impossible problem. I think that a way that we have inspired people to think about the long-term vision of the product has been in telling that story about what could be possible, even if it's not there yet. But delivering, of course, and delivering quickly and then going on to the next thing. So we invested a lot in the brand. We invested a lot in our connection with our community. We've invested a lot of things that are not measurable. Maybe a CFO would tell you they're horrible ideas. How do I measure that? And like, oh, it seems like we're just wasting money and whatnot. And yeah, there might be some casualties on the way in terms of maybe I did some marketing thing that it turned out to be more expensive than I thought. And maybe they didn't even think about it as marketing. So that would be my advice is that there's a healthy in some ways, but there's a lot of skepticism about what are the actual attributes behind the success of companies. And I think some folks underestimate just how good the products are that you think are universally regarded as good and how much more is compensated through the storytelling. You said something interesting. You moved to Silicon Valley, but that was pre-COVID. Do you think that Silicon Valley is both going to attract the best and brightest from around the world now? And do you think that it makes sense for the best and brightest to come to Silicon Valley? Yeah, what I feel 100% bullish about is that the United States, and I've been to many countries, many lovely countries, the United States is the most welcoming country to immigrants that I've experienced. That is not just welcoming in the sense of, here's a path to get a passport, in a house. Well, here's a path, if you're willing to walk it, to actually create an incredible company, to invent new things, to team up with other people, to get a platform to say things. There's just no comparison. Point this out because there has been a challenge to this narrative by a lot of different people. And I always come back to like, I think it was Warren Buffett. I don't want to pull the classic Woody Allen quote. I think it was Warren Buffett that said, everyone is criticizing the US so strongly. I invite them to relinquish the passport. And I think there's all these countries that are happy to trade their passports. And boom, here you go. So I would say I'm almost fanatical about this because again, I've been to so many countries. The US is definitely really special. Now, I'm also bad about San Francisco just because I love the environment. 
There's just so many good properties about SF and Silicon Valley. Part of it is rational. Part of it is emotional, to be honest. I just love how symbolic a lot of the inventions that have happened. Take one of the best typefaces that has come out in the last couple of years. It's called San Francisco. Apple put it out. There's just so much that inspires someone to build and create there. Now, what I think will happen, because I think this is all downstream from the U.S. as a system, there will be other Silicon Valleys in the U.S., and I think that there are a lot of countries that will also follow the steps of what they're learning from watching this grand experiment happen, which is, as a reminder, all of these things have happened in a very short amount of time. What does that mean? You can't take any of this for granted. And second, there will be countries paying attention and copying and exceeding some of these properties in the global competition for talent and for the innovations of tomorrow. It's been great. Thank you, Guillermo, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you on Twitter at R-A-U-C-H-G. Definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Deaths is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Deaths. Check it out at flexcapital.com.